This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of pediatric proximal femur fractures from the pediatric section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Proximal femur fractures in the pediatric population are rare fractures caused by high-energy trauma and are often associated with polytrauma. Diagnosis can be made with plain radiographs of the hip. Treatment is usually operative, with the technique depending on the age of the patient and the Del Bay classification type of the fracture. Now, let's get into the episode. Pediatric proximal femur fractures account for less than 1% of pediatric fractures. As far as the demographics, males are more commonly affected than females in a 2.5 to 1 ratio. There is a bimodal distribution of these injuries, that is children less than 2 to 3 years old due to non-accidental trauma, and adolescents involved in motor vehicle accidents. The mechanism of injury of pediatric proximal femur fractures is usually the result of a high-energy trauma in 75 to 80% of patients. These injuries, however, can result from low-energy trauma if the patient has weakened bone, for example, from tumors or metabolic bone disease. As far as associated conditions, 30 to 85% of patients will have associated traumatic injuries, such as head or facial trauma, splenic lacerations, retroperitoneal hemorrhage, perineal injury, pelvic ring or acetabular fractures, hip dislocation, or femur fractures. Some associated complications include avascular necrosis and premature physeal closure. Now let's go over some relevant anatomy. Specifically, we'll talk about osteology, blood supply, and neurovascular structures. As far as the osteology, the proximal femur develops from two centers of ossification the proximal femoral epiphysis, and the trochanteric apophysis. As far as the proximal femoral epiphysis, ossification begins at 4 to 6 months in girls and 5 to 7 months in boys. This is responsible for the metaphyseal growth of the femoral neck. The rate of growth of the proximal femoral epiphysis is 3 millimeters per year and accounts for 13 to 15% of overall leg length and accounts for 30% of overall femur length. As far as the trochanteric apophysis, Ossification begins at four years in both girls and boys. This is responsible for appositional growth of the greater trochanter. This also makes a small contribution to growth of the femoral neck and the intertrochanteric femur. As far as disordered growth, injury to the greater trochanteric apophysis leads to shortening of the greater trochanter and subsequently coxa valga. Overgrowth of the greater trochanteric apophysis leads to coxa vara. Again, injury to the greater trochanteric apophysis leads to shortening of the greater trochanter and coxa valga, and overgrowth of the greater trochanteric apophysis leads to coxa vara. As far as the blood supply to the proximal femur, the important vessels to know are the medial femoral circumflex artery, the lateral femoral circumflex artery, the artery of the ligamentum teres, and the metaphyseal vessels. The medial femoral circumflex artery supplies the femoral head via the posteroinferior and posteroinferior retinacular branches. At birth, the medial femoral circumflex artery contributes to the blood supply to the head with the lateral femoral circumflex artery and the artery of the ligamentum teres. At four years old, the medial femoral circumflex artery becomes the main blood supply after regression of the lateral femoral circumflex artery and the artery of the ligamentum teres. At birth, the lateral femoral circumflex artery contributes to the blood supply to the head and then regresses in late childhood. Similarly, at birth, the artery of the ligamentum teres contributes to the blood supply to the head and then diminishes after four years old. 
The metaphyseal vessels also contribute to the blood supply to the femoral head in those less than 3 years old and then after 14 to 17 years. Between 3 to 14 to 17 years, the physis blocks the metaphyseal supply. After 14 to 17 years, anastomoses between the metaphyseal epiphyseal vessels develop. As far as the neurovascular structures to be aware of, the superior gluteal nerve gets contribution from L5, S1, and S2. This innervates the gluteus medius and the gluteus minimus. Pediatric patients with proximal femur fractures present with symptoms of severe pain in the affected hip and inability to bear weight. Physical exam will reveal a shortened, externally rotated lower extremity. The classification of pediatric proximal femur fractures is the Delbay classification, which is divided into four types. Type 1 is described as transficeal, that is with or without epiphyseal dislocation. The incidence of type 1 injuries is less than 10%, and avascular necrosis occurs in 38 to 100% of type 1 injuries. Type 2 is described as transcervical, and the incidence of type 2 injuries is 40 to 50% of cases, avascular necrosis occurs in 28% of cases, and nonunion occurs in 15% of cases. Type 3 is described as cervical trochanteric or basicervical. The incidence of type 3 injuries is 30 to 35%, avascular necrosis occurs in 18% of cases, and nonunion occurs in 15 to 20% of cases. Type 4 injuries are described as intertrochanteric, and the incidence is between 10 to 20%, avascular necrosis occurs in 5% of cases, and nonunion also occurs in 5% of cases. As far as imaging, recommended views on radiographs include an AP and a cross-table lateral. Optional studies include a bone survey if there's suspected non-accidental trauma. Findings on radiographs may include a break-slash-offset of the bony trabeculae near Ward's triangle. This indicates a non-displaced or impacted fracture. A CT scan is indicated for non-displaced fractures and stress fractures. An MRI is also indicated for non-displaced fractures and stress fractures, and keep in mind that an MRI is preferred over a CT scan. An MRI is also indicated for pathologic fractures. Findings on MRI include a well-defined low-signal line and surrounding high-signal bone edema on T2-weighted images. Again, findings on MRI include a well-defined low-signal line and surrounding high-signal bone edema on T2-weighted images. Ultrasounds are indicated for non-displaced fractures in infants. Findings include hemarthrosis, which is difficult to differentiate from effusion due to inflammation or infection. Other findings on ultrasound include subtle epiphyseal mobility. The differential for pediatric proximal femur fractures include leg calvae perthes disease, toxic synovitis, spontaneous hemarthrosis, or infection. Treatment of pediatric proximal femur fractures can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes close reduction and spica abduction casting. This is rarely indicated, however can be indicated in type 1 injuries without epiphyseal dislocation, as well as types 2, 3, and 4 if non-displaced slash minimally displaced and the patient is less than 4 years old. Make sure to evaluate type 1 fractures for non-accidental trauma if the patient is young that is less than 2 to 3 years old. Operative options include an emergent ORIF with a capsulotomy or joint aspiration, closed reduction and percutaneous pinning, open reduction internal fixation with pin slash screw fixation, or open reduction internal fixation with a sliding hip screw or a DHS. 
An emergent ORIF with capsulotomy or joint aspiration is indicated for open hip fractures, which are rare. It's also indicated for vessel injury, where a large vessel repair is required. This is also rare. Concomitant hip or epiphyseal dislocations, especially type 1 and fractures with significant displacement, and some data suggests that this may decrease the rate of avascular necrosis. Closed reduction and percutaneous pinning is indicated for type 1 injuries without epiphyseal dislocation, type 2 injuries, or type 3 injuries if displaced and or the patient is greater than 4 years old. As far as fixation, smooth pins may be adequate in young patients if postoperative spica casting is performed. Cannulated screws can be used in older patients and adolescents. Postoperatively, a fracture brace or a spica cast can be placed if there is concern that the long lever arm of the leg could contribute to loss of fixation of the fracture. An ORAF with pin slash screw fixation is indicated for type 1, 2, or 3 injuries if you are unable to achieve closed anatomic reduction. Postoperatively, consider a fracture brace or a spica cast in these patients if there is a concern for stability of the fracture. An ORIF with a sliding hip screw or a DHS is indicated for type 4 injuries if displaced or the patient is greater than 4 years old. Now let's go over some of these management techniques in a bit more detail. We'll go over closed reduction and spica abduction casting, emergent ORIF with capsulotomy or joint aspiration, closed reduction and percutaneous pinning, ORIF with pin slash screw fixation, and ORIF with a DHS. So as far as timing of reduction in a closed reduction and spica abduction casting, early reduction, which is defined as less than 24 hours, may diminish the risk of avascular necrosis by restoring the blood flow through the kinked vessels. The technique involves a fracture table, which is preferred for most patients. However, you can use a radiolucent table for younger patients. The technique involves applying gentle longitudinal traction with abduction and internal rotation. Follow with weekly radiographs for three weeks to make sure the reduction is maintained. As far as acceptable alignment, in type 2 injuries, you can accept less than 2 millimeters of cortical translation, less than 5 degrees of angulation, and no malrotation. Again, in type 2 injuries, you can accept less than 2 millimeters of cortical translation, less than 5 degrees of angulation, and no malrotation. In type 3 and 4 injuries, you can accept less than 10 degrees of angulation. Again, in type 3 and 4 injuries, you can accept less than 10 degrees of angulation. As far as emergent ORIF with capsulotomy or joint aspiration, this may decrease the risk of avascular necrosis. The technique involves aspiration with a large bore needle through the subadductor slash anterior hip approach. An open capsulotomy is done through an anterior incision. As far as a closed reduction and a percutaneous pinning, the reduction technique again can involve a fracture table, which is preferred for most patients, and you can use a radiolucent table for younger patients. You will apply gentle longitudinal traction with abduction and internal rotation, and follow with weekly radiographs for three weeks to make sure the reduction is maintained. Instrumentation will involve smooth or threaded pins slash K-wires. The indications are for a type 1 injury without epiphyseal dislocation, type 2 injuries, or type 3 injuries in patients less than 4 years old. Cannulated screws are indicated for type 1 injuries without epiphyseal dislocation and in type 2 or type 3 injuries in patients greater than 4 years old. As far as the technique for pin slash screw placement, short of the physis is indicated for patients less than 4 to 6 years old and in most type 3 fractures. Keep in mind that short of the physis is less stable than transphyseal. 
Transficeal is indicated in older patients close to skeletal maturity that is greater than 12 years old and when there is little metaphyseal bone available. It's also indicated where crossing the physis is necessary to achieve stable fixation. Keep in mind that it's easier to treat leg length discrepancy from premature physeal closure than non-union. The pin slash screw is placed within 5 millimeters of subchondral bone and make sure to avoid the anterolateral quadrant of the epiphysis and posterior perforation of the femoral neck, and this is to prevent injury to the vasculature. Post-op immobilization will involve a post-op spica cast in abduction and internal rotation for 6 to 12 weeks if the patient is less than 4 years old or pin slash screw placement short of the physis. This is because the long lever arm of the leg could contribute to loss of fixation of the fracture. Moving on to ORIF with pin slash screw fixation, the approach is through an anterolateral or a Watson-Jones approach. The instrumentation slash technique is the same as what we just discussed for a closed reduction and percutaneous pinning. So again, the pin slash screw placement can be short of the physis or transficeal. An ORIF with a DHS is done through a lateral or hardinge approach, and the instrumentation is a pediatric hip screw. Some complications to be aware of include avascular necrosis, coxavara that is with a neck shaft angle of less than 120 degrees, coxavalga, non-union, physeal arrest, limb length discrepancy, chondrolysis, malreduction, or infection. Avascular necrosis is the most common complication. Risk factors include age, fracture type, delayed reduction greater than 24 hours, or inadequate slash unstable reduction. As far as age, the risk increases 1.14 times for every year of increasing age. Again, avascular necrosis risk increases 1.14 times for every year of increasing age. Fracture type is another risk factor for avascular necrosis, and the risk is highest for type 1 fractures, with a nearly 100% risk if there's epiphyseal dislocation. The etiology of avascular necrosis is kinking slash laceration of the vessels, as well as tamponade by intracapsular hematoma. The classification of avascular necrosis is the Ratliff classification, and this is divided into three types. Type 1 is involvement of the whole head, type 2 is partial involvement of the head, and type 3 is area of necrosis in the femoral neck from the fracture line to the physis. The treatment involves core decompression as well as a vascularized fibular graft. Again, treatment involves core decompression as well as a vascularized fibula graft. Moving on to coxavara, which is again a neck shaft angle of less than 120 degrees, and this is the second most common complication. As far as risk factors, coxavara is more common if the fracture is treated non-operatively, and is more common for types 1, 2, and 3 fractures. And keep in mind that the incidence is 25% for type 3 fractures. As far as treatment of coxavara, in young patients defined as 0 to 3 years old, these patients will remodel if the neck shaft angle is greater than 110 degrees. Other treatments include surgical arrest of the trochanteric apophysis, as well as subtrochanteric or intertrochanteric valgus osteotomy. A surgical arrest of the trochanteric apophysis is indicated for mild coxavara in patients less than 6 to 8 years old. This only works in younger patients. A subtrochanteric or intertrochanteric valgus osteotomy is indicated for coxavara with non-union, coxavara with severe Trendelenburg limp or signs-slash-symptoms of femoral acetabular impingement, and is also indicated in older patients. Moving on to coxavalga, this is seen in type 4 fractures involving the greater trochanter in younger patients. This is due to the premature greater trochanteric apophysis closure. 
moving on to non-union, this can occur together with Coxavara. The etiology is non-operative treatment of type 2 or 3 fractures. Non-union can also occur from occult infection at the fracture site or a malreduced fracture. The treatment of non-union is ORIF and immobilization with the spica cast if the patient is younger, subtrochanteric or intertrochanteric valgus osteotomy, or bone grafting if the non-union is persistent. Moving on to physeal arrest, this can lead to leg length discrepancy. Keep in mind that the proximal femoral physis contributes to 15% of the overall limb length at 3 millimeters per year. Significant leg length discrepancy is defined as greater than 2 centimeters. However, this is rare and only occurs in very young children. Risk factors for physeal arrest include penetration of the physis by fixation devices and avascular necrosis, which is more common in patients with type 2 or 3 avascular necrosis. Moving on to limb length discrepancy, significant limb length discrepancy occurs in combined avascular necrosis and physeal arrest. As far as treatment of leg length discrepancy, a shoe lift can be used if the projected limb length discrepancy at skeletal maturity is less than 2 centimeters, or an epiphysiodesis of the contralateral distal femur plus or minus the proximal tibia if the projected limb length discrepancy at skeletal maturity is 2 to 5 centimeters. Moving on to chondrolysis, this is usually associated with avascular necrosis. The etiology is poor vascularity to the femoral head cartilage or penetration of hardware into the joint. Chondrolysis typically presents as restricted hip motion, hip pain, or radiographic joint space narrowing. Malreduction is common with subtrochanteric fractures, and keep in mind that deforming forces lead to the proximal fragment inflection, abduction, and external rotation. As far as the prognosis of pediatric proximal femur fractures, poor functional outcomes have been associated with head trauma, amputation, peripheral neurologic damage, and avascular necrosis. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic might be tested. First question. Which of the following injuries is associated with the highest incidence of osteonecrosis? And the choices are 1. 69-year-old male with a valgus-impacted three-part proximal humerus fracture, 2. 89-year-old female with a valgus-impacted garden 1 femoral neck fracture, 3. 14-year-old male with a displaced distal femoral physeal fracture, 4. 13-year-old female with a displaced transcervical femoral neck fracture, and 5. 42-year-old male with a closed fifth metatarsal fracture at the metaphyseal-diaphyseal junction. The correct answer to this question is 4, 13-year-old female with a displaced transcervical femoral neck fracture. So a displaced transcervical femoral neck fracture in an adolescent has the highest rate of osteonecrosis of the listed options. To quickly review, osteonecrosis is the most common complication of hip fractures in children. The overall risk of osteonecrosis after a pediatric femoral neck fracture is approximately 30%. This risk is further stratified by considering the Del Bay classification. Type 1 transficeal femoral neck fractures are at the greatest risk of osteonecrosis at a rate of 38%. Type 1B fractures, that is a dislocation of the epiphysis, have osteonecrosis rates approaching 100%. Type 2 through 4 fractures have osteonecrosis rates of 28%, 18%, and 5% respectively. The risk of osteonecrosis is increased with increased displacement and proximity to the physis, and the risk can be decreased with prompt anatomic reduction and intracapsular decompression. 
Jew et al. retrospectively reviewed 58 pediatric patients with femoral neck fractures that underwent either open reduction and internal fixation or closed reduction and internal fixation more than 24 hours after injury. The incidence of avascular necrosis was significantly lower in those treated with open reduction, that is 5 out of 37 were open, versus 6 out of 21 that were closed, and in those that achieved anatomic reduction, that is 3 out of 41 anatomic, versus 8 out of 17 acceptable. Therefore, the authors recommend treating patients that present greater than 24 hours after the injury with open reduction and internal fixation. Spence et al. retrospectively reviewed 70 pediatric patients that underwent surgical treatment for a femoral neck fracture. Osteonecrosis occurred in 29% of the patients and time to treatment greater than 24 hours was a positive predictor of this complication. The authors recommend prompt treatment of this injury. Moving on to the next question, which of the following best describes the vascular supply to the femoral epiphysis in children under the age of 18 months old? And the choices are 1, artery of the ligamentum teres, 2, medial femoral circumflex artery, 3, medial and lateral femoral circumflex artery, 4, medial femoral circumflex artery and the artery of the ligamentum teres, 5, medial and lateral femoral circumflex artery and the artery of the ligamentum teres. The correct answer to this question is 5, medial and lateral femoral circumflex artery and the artery of the ligamentum teres. So in children under the age of 4 years, the femoral epiphysis is supplied by the medial and lateral femoral circumflex arteries as well as the artery of the ligamentum teres, which is a branch of the operator artery. To quickly review, the medial femoral circumflex artery and the lateral femoral circumflex artery constitute the main blood supply to the femoral head in early bone development. In adolescence and after maturity, the femoral head receives its blood supply mainly from the medial femoral circumflex artery with the posterior superior and posterior inferior retinacular branches from this artery being the most important. Boardman et al. reviewed pediatric hip fractures. They state that after the age of 4 years old, the blood supply through the artery of the ligamentum teres and lateral femoral circumflex artery diminishes. This leaves the medial femoral circumflex artery as the principal blood supply to the femoral head via its posteroinferior and posteroinferior retinacular branches. John Truda, in 1957, studied the normal vascular anatomy of the human femoral head. He commented that all three vessels are functional in the femoral head up until the age of 18 to 36 months when the ligamentum teres artery is the first to become non-functional. By age 6, the medial femoral circumflex artery is the dominant blood supply. Moving on to the next question, what nerve or nerves innervates the muscle or muscles responsible for creating abduction deforming forces to the proximal fracture fragment of a pediatric proximal femur fracture? And the choices are 1, superior gluteal nerve, 2, inferior and superior gluteal nerve, 3, sciatic nerve, 4, direct branches from L1 to L3, and 5, the femoral nerve. The correct answer to this question is 1, superior gluteal nerve. So abduction of the proximal fragment is attributable to the pull of the abductor muscles, that is the gluteus medius and minimus, at the greater trochanter. These muscles are innervated by the superior gluteal nerve. The proximal fragment in subtrochanteric femoral shaft fractures is usually displaced into flexion, abduction, and external rotation. The pull of these muscles must be considered when reducing, fixing, and or monitoring these fractures. 
Non-operative treatment options include casting or traction with delayed casting. Operative options include flexible intramedullary nailing, trochanteric antegrade intramedullary nailing, bridge plating, or external fixation. Hasselker et al. reviewed intramedullary nailing of pediatric femoral shaft fractures. They state the peripheral branches of the medial femoral circumflex artery are close to the piriformis fossa, thus increasing the chances of osteonecrosis if piriformis entry nails are used. Jarvis et al. retrospectively reviewed 13 adolescents with an average age of 13 with subtrochanteric fractures. Eight were operatively treated with satisfactory results compared to three patients treated non-operatively, which were deemed unsatisfactory. They conclude that operative treatment should always be considered if surgery can be tolerated. And moving on to the final question. When addressing a proximal intertrochanteric or subtrochanteric fracture in a juvenile with open growth plates, the arterial supply from what artery at the neck must be preserved? And the choices are 1. Lateral femoral circumflex, 2. Medial femoral circumflex, 3. Superior gluteal, 4. Inferior gluteal, and 5. Obturator. The correct answer to this question is 2. Medial femoral circumflex. So the medial femoral circumflex artery supplies blood to the femoral head. Its position along the posterior superior femoral neck places this structure at risk with intramedullary nailing of the femur. Therefore, lateral entry through the greater trochanter is preferred when intramedullary fixation is performed. That's all for this review about pediatric proximal femur fractures. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.